0: It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy.
1: So guys, welcome back. This is more of a traditional podcast today. I appreciate, you know, we had John Stein on last episode. Got some feedback on it. Some of you even shared on Twitter that you thought John was a little salesy. All I can say is, Bo. I wish that I was as quick on my feet as John was because I thought he did do a good job. Look, his job obviously is to promote his brand and his company. I thought he he was really quick he, on his feet. He did a great job. Um, and maybe, maybe that so we could have squeezed him a little bit more, but I still thought it was a, a good interview nonetheless. So check it out. If you haven't had a chance to go to money dash guy dot com to go check out our interview with John Stein from Betterment. But here's what we'll be talking about today. I want to tell you if you looked at your portfolio and you try to figure out what's the boringest, probably least sexy part of your entire portfolio, it's your cash.
0: Oh yeah, Ca- cash is trash.
1: I mean that really is. We've we've been in such a downturn of keeping interest rates so low that most people really despise their cash. So I'm gonna. The, the, I don't know if it's a working title. I don't know if this will stick, Bo. But I have rocking that unsexy cash. Yeah, that's we're going to call that a working title. Yeah, that's probably cuz <laughs> that, that doesn't show up in Google well probably. Yeah, we're
0: we're going to work on that one a touch. So,
1: but it, I think it does lead itself to to the main thing I'm trying to figure out is why is cash become a four letter word to your portfolio. And the and the two big things I came up with is that it earns practically nothing. I mean, it is one of those things where I can remember one of the greatest things as a kid who's trying to, you know, who who had an aptitude for wanting to be better with my finances, when I saved up enough money from doing, you know, odd jobs and hustles around the house was that my parents went with me to the bank and I opened up my own savings account. Right. And back in the day, it was not hard to get, you know, three, four, five percent rate of return so that you know if you put it's just on cash or is that like buying CDs No, it's just buying you know a, a savings account you know so it's not CDs it's just, just putting it into crazy, a savings right account. to think about 3 or 4% on it, cash it definitely does and that's what i'm saying so i'd say when when we're saying why is it a four letter word it's because it earns nothing and the second part it ties into what I, the story i was just sharing is for those in retirement it's really a broken promise and what i mean by that cuz that sounds pretty harsh is is that generations have made it off of just basically cash and CDs. Mm-hmm. If you asked me what my parents' primary saving instrument in the past was, my dad loved doing CDs. My grandfather loved doing CDs. And they would travel around all these different banks in the community, and they'd take these teaser rates, and then they would just, as they they came due, they'd go jump to the next community bank and, and get another introductory offer. And it's just one of those things where cash used to actually earn you something. And and I thought it was one of those things I went and did a little research to try to figure out what are we walking away from with this artificial environment of low interest rates. So what I came back with, and let me give you the source first. This is the annual abstract of statistics from the Office for National Statistics as of July Fourteenth, 2015. So this is pretty recent stuff. In the 60s, interest rates ranged from 3.38% all the way up to 5%. So you're going to notice a trend here. Seventies, they range from 4.88 percent all the way up to 8.31 percent.
0: Holy cow! It's a pretty
1: decent rate of return. The eighties, it ranged from 6.75 percent all the way up to 11.96. Wow who needs equities when you can Seriously. go buy you know a, a CD that will pay you 7 to 8%. I mean that's a pretty incredible decade there during the 80s and don't don't forget this is also the period when equities were taking off. You know we had the the hyperinflation of the early 80s and then things got under control so you really had some tremendous opportunities on your investments back in the eighties. The nineties ranged from four point five four percent all the way up to thirteen and a half percent. That thirteen and a half was kind of on the front end, so it was kind of a continuation of the eighties. Sure. Two thousands was two point two one percent all the way up to five and a half percent. And and I can attest to that. I can tell you when I before I started my firm, guys, I was, um, working at another firm back in the early 2000s and we would have clients in money market accounts like at Schwab and other places that were earning 6%. Wow. I mean, that th- you look back and you go, wow, that's kind of incredible because now when you look at your, your cash returns on your quarterly statements, you're like, well, cash is either zero or negative because there was some investment fee in my 401k. So it even hurt my performance a little bit. Um, and then 2009 to present is really the state we've been. And what happened was we had the, the great recession and there's been a lot of central bank, bank involvement to keep those interest rates, not just here in the United States, but now, you know, globally, a lot of the, the bodies that, that maintain and monitor the interest rates for different countries have artificially kept interest rates low, especially here in the United States, the Federal Reserve. And, and if you're wondering what's going on with the stock market for the last month, you know August was horrible. Mm-hmm. We closed out the month of August, and then we've still got this crazy roller coaster that's going on with the, the financial marketplace where in the morning at 9.30, the market might be up 200 points, but it closes out the day down 100 points or 200 points because you're, you're wondering why is it throwing this temp- temper tantrum? And a lot of it has to do with, I think, that we've gotten so used to the low interest rates that Wall Street's throwing a little bit of a temper tantrum that there's a chance that Janet Yellen over at the Federal Reserve is going to start raising interest rates. So it's almost like saying, hey, Janet, pay attention to us over here. You know, it really is throwing a temper tantrum. But we've got to get some type of normalization to interest rates because we can't run at zero forever. I mean, we're kind of running our own little game here with the rest of the world, wondering when somebody's going to call our bluff on it because I didn't realize people love low interest rates. Governments love low interest rates just because you can go borrow money for the government. I mean, we can print all this money, and it doesn't have much of a carry right. cost. But you can only do this game for so long. So I, I thought it was just interesting getting back on track, taking it away from just the the, the policy of keeping low interest rates, but it is a broken promise to those people. Can you imagine if you're one of those people that retired in 2010 and you do want to keep a healthy portion of your money in cash and you're earning 0.01%? Because that's what a lot of the brick and mortars are paying right. you.
0: Well, it, me- and meanwhile, when you go to the grocery store or go to the gas tank, the cost
1: of your life is certainly increasing more than that is. Yeah, and, and it's no wonder that so many people now have made – The the S and P 500 more of a staple. I mean, it's had to push everybody, and that's kind of what the government was trying to do. Is they're trying to push you into taking more risk with your portfolio, and and, you know, and I guess that's for for us as professional investors and managing people's money. It's been great to watch how commonplace dealing with the Standard and Poor's 500 is in the 500 biggest companies in the United States, but there is a big risk. With retired people putting so much of their money out there into the equity marketplace and risk assets. And that's kind of the distortion you've seen come from these policies. So I want to talk to you about these are the three things I'm hoping you'll get from the podcast. And I'm going to give you these three points and then they're going to kind of be weaved within the topics that I'm going to go through. The first thing is I want to talk to you about just emergency reserves. Even though cash is one of the most, is unsexy, it's not a a thing that's earning a lot of money in your portfolio. It's a necessary evil. Absolutely. So you've got to have you some emergency reserves or a safety net. So we're going to talk about that and give you some type of understanding of what you should have with your own personal finances. I also tell people, understand – the second thing is understand the change in how you use your cash. Um, I had a, a family friend reach out to me recently because they were having trouble figuring out, you know, I have cash reserves, money in the bank. But then, I, I'm, unfortunately, this person's retired but had some debt, mm-hmm. you know, because they helped out a family friend, and they had some debt. And they were trying to figure out, well, what do I do? Do I do I pay off the debt first, or do I keep the emergency reserve? So we want to give you some guidance on that. And I also understand some of you out there in the audience, you might be freshly minted, graduated from college or high school, and and you're going to hear me say some guidelines on what you should have in cash reserves. You go, Brian, I, goodness gracious, I just got out of college. There's no way I could have three to six months of cash right. reserves. I get that. I've been there. I know what you're talking about. So I'm going to give you some guidance also because money does evolve as you age. And so you need to understand how that change occurs throughout your life. And then the third thing I'm hoping you'll pick up is you got to throw a little Warren Buffett in there. You got to have some opportunity capital. Um, But I'm putting that last, you'll notice, in priorities because you've got to have a lot of boxes checked in your life before you can consider having opportunity capital. But I know we have a lot of cream in this crop. I mean, if you if you look at who listens to our podcast, we've got a lot of successful people. So I think there are a number of people that are probably listening and they go, wow, that, that kind of hits me in a mm-hmm. lot of areas. Maybe I should have some opportunity capital. Yes, it stinks that I'm foregoing some return that I could have if I just had this working in a traditional marketplace. But it will be, you know, essentially powder that I will have available when the time is right. And those do come around usually once a decade. Mm -hmm. You will have an opportunity to really make some great returns if you keep cash because cash is not exactly laying around the sidelines when people are scared. Or or it is on the sidelines when people are scared, but you don't see a lot of people willing to put it into into play. So let's talk about emergency reserves first. I put in my notes, and we've talked about this before, and I've even written on it when we've done U.S. News and some other things, is the ideal safety net while you're still in the workforce is three to six months. Bo, what's the logic on why you want three to six months of cash reserves?
0: Essentially, what you want to do is you want to bridge any gap if there were to be a lapse in employment. We generally tell uh, couples uh, that are are living and working together um, that if you're going to have a hard time finding employment, if it's something where you're in a job that's very specialized, it's not going to be easy to transition – you probably need to have a little bit larger of a buffer and shoot for that six month, uh, six month number. If you're in a vocation where, uh, it's very highly sought out and you can go find a job pretty quickly, you might be okay with a, a little leaner of a situation, only keeping maybe three or four
1: months in your cash reserves. And Bo, we were talking about when we were doing pre-show prep, you'd ask me about debt management and I was, I was explaining Everything should be in that three to six months right. living expenses. That's covering your mortgage. That's covering the utilities. That's covering paying for the car payments. Everything, even dog food for old Fido. You need to make <laughs> sure you're putting everything in those living expenses so that you're as conservative as safe as possible. Yep. Because this is your emergency reserves, your safety net if things go bad. Um, I, I wanted to talk about another group of people, the young people. This is the people of probably sub twenty six years of age. Okay. You know, you come into the workforce.
0: Millennials are what these people are known as now,
1: <laughs> and, and believe me, I have friends you know that are in that millennial train. And man, are they getting a lot of press? I've never <laughs> seen a generation get as much press as the millennials have. So whatever you guys are doing, I don't know if it's because you're the quirkiest generation or if you're just the best marketing generation, <laughs> but um, getting a lot of press. But you're, I guess, you're right. Millennials, when you first come out, I recognize telling you to get three to six months of cash might seem. Ridiculous because you're trying to figure out how you can get that put in three to four percent of your of your pay to get the match, the maximum match for the employer, and you've got other things pulling on you. You know, you, you just came out of debt and you're trying to get your feet about you. I would tell you to make sure that you can at least get a thousand to two thousand dollars in cash saved up as fast as possible. And the primary purpose for that is you want to be able to cover deductibles. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of you will recognize on your, you know, when you start paying for your own auto insurance and other things, you'll have deductibles, and those are the catastra- catastrophic things that can happen to you. Um, you get in a car accident, maybe you have a five hundred dollar deductible. Um, you get into some medical issues, you might have a thousand to twenty five hundred dollar deductible in your right. medical. Even some of you might even have a five thousand dollar deductible. Whatever your deductibles are. I would try to make sure you have at least at a minimum that type of coverage cuz that's the stuff that can come in and happen on a Tuesday afternoon and really derail your future if you don't have some cash. So, if you if you can't do 3 to 6 months, take those baby steps to at least make sure you can cover those insurance deductibles. Yeah, absolutely. Um for people who are older, you know, I tell people, you know, once you retire, there's a new stress that comes upon your life that people have never anticipated. You know, it's it's one of those things where if the market's misbehaving like it has been for the last month or so, while you're in the workforce, you go, oh, shucks, I'll just, you know, shucks is probably the cleanest way you can say it. You say, I guess I'll stay in the workforce for another, you know, two or three years, let this blow over and let my portfolio recover. But once you leave the workforce, you lose that option. And because you've lost that flexibility, you're going to feel that you have more stress then you've ever thought because now instead of working with your, your, your brain, your hands, your back, um, you're now working off of what your portfolio generates for you. And that, and that's a little unsettling for a lot of people. So that's why we do also recommend try to be as debt free as possible once you leave the workforce. But when you do leave the workforce to give you a little bit of that comfort, I always recommend, you know, retired individuals, besides being debt free, I like them to have 12 to 24 months of cash. Now, Where you fall in that 12 to 24 months really has to do with your comfort level with risk and how scared you get, but also just how, you know, your living expenses flow through.
0: And so, Brian, if I'm a retired individual and I am someone who's fortunate enough that I have a pension from my company, I have some Social Security coming in, so I've got some guaranteed streams of income. Should I hold less cash, or should I still hold that twelve to twelve to eighteen months of cash?
1: And well, it's the two answers there. For sure, you you're you have the right, or you're not wrong to hold less cash. By all means, if you have an annuitized income stream coming in, you could qualify yourself to to not necessarily hold a lot of cash. However, I'm going to tell you later in the show. If you check all the boxes, nothing wrong with having a little extra cash for opportunity. But realize. That opportunity money I'm about to talk about is a risk asset. Mm -hmm. And if you're not one of those people that's wired to try to make a little bit extra, or maybe you don't need to make a little bit extra, then you know you just want to put that into a diversified portfolio. But great question, Bo. I I do think it's one of those things I I kind of teased on it a few minutes ago. It goes into play with that gentleman I was having dinner with, is that if you do have a mortgage or a credit card debt or something that you're having to pay greater than 4% interest rate on, you might want to, if, you, if you've if got excess, meaning you've got the emergency reserve covered and you still have cash, because sometimes, especially with retired individuals, cash kind of builds and then before they know it, they have more cash than they probably should have, Absolutely. but then you talk to them and you find out they're still paying on a mortgage worth maybe they helped out a family member and they did a home equity line, or they just had some credit card debt or a car loan or something like that, and you're like, you have a reverse arbitrage situation, meaning that you are actually paying four, five, six percent interest on money that is now only earning you a half a percent. Why, Why have that cash in the bank if you don't need it and then pay these monthly payments? I recommend to people if you have those emergency reserves covered, Definitely go and look and make sure you don't have some debt that you ought to be paying down. Uh, The the ideal situation is you have zero debt in retirement, but I recognize some people, unfortunately, don't have that completely tied down. So at least make sure you're making the best financial decisions with your cash, cash management. I also want to talk to people about some temptations to avoid. Um, and I, and I fell in this. You know, one of the greatest things about doing this for a living is that I don't mind sharing with you guys the mistakes I've seen clients make as well as mistakes I've made. So hopefully you won't repeat those mistakes. I, all through the, the 2000s, I was one of those people that I had a, I bought a house and my equity was in the six figures mm-hmm. or my perceived equity, I should <laughs> say, was in the six figures. Um, so I had this home, huge home equity line. That was really not being used, but I felt like, you know what, Brian, you've got six figures of home equity, at prime minus a half, because that's what banks were doing back then. So it's practically the interest rate was very low. Right. I was like, why do I need to keep any cash? I might as well swing for the fences, go ahead and have as much money working for me as possible because I have this six figures of of equity in my home that I have a checkbook for, right. that if I had an opportunity or a concern, I'll just go stroke a check. Right. That sounds brilliant. It's
0: In theory, it, it like the sounds perfect It sounds brilliant.
1: And I will tell you, you know, the reason I'm telling you this is a temptation is because real estate values are once again on the rise. People have recovered some of their losses from the Great Recession. And I'm sure that it's becoming easier to get home equity lines once again. So there might be this false sense of you have protection. And there's nothing wrong with home equity lines in principle. But here's the problem. If you want to know what asset class probably has the best non correlation with your investments, it's cash. Absolutely. Because, you know, the thing is, is that even bonds, bonds are great in the fact that, you know, if you, if you go to an investment 101 class, people will tell you why you've got to have bonds and why you have to have stocks is that when stocks go up, bonds can make money, but they're not going to make as much as stocks. But the good thing about bonds is typically, when stock markets are getting beat up, you got your bonds there to provide you some type of, of, of protection or right. downside. But here's what we noticed after the Great Recession. Even great asset diversifiers like bonds can lose money when you have an all-hands-on-deck, holy cow, the wheels are falling off this wagon type moment like we had in 2008. People need to have cash sure. for those type of moments because you can have the most diversified portfolio in the world and... You can still lose money in everything Mm -hmm. but your cash, and that's why you have to be careful with that. So that's why I always recommend, if you think about it in those terms, if you've got an asset class like real estate that could go down just like the stock market has gone down, and then the bank, because this happened, the bank started sending out letters to people saying, hey, you know that home equity line you have? Because the market value of your house has materially been impacted, We're freezing your access to that home equity line. So essentially, six figures of what you perceive as being available cash disappeared overnight. What I told you was perceived home equity line quickly evaporated. Um, I, I got the letter in the mail, just like everybody else did who listens to this podcast, who remembers those times. They froze our home equity lines. So if you didn't have any level of cash out there and they froze your home equity line, you could be caught completely naked. So if you have, remember I was talking about the college kids and the people under 26, you know, need to have at least enough to cover your insurance deductibles. There are people who are 40, 35, 50 who are doing this crazy opportunity like I was doing where right. you're thinking, Hey, I'm actually maximizing my rate of return. No, there's potential if we hit another downturn that you could be caught completely naked and, um, really get yourself in a one heck of a pickle. Mm-hmm. So I always tell people be, be very careful of avoiding that temptation. So. I've talked about kind of the emergency reserves, and I want to kind of shift gears. And I've talked to also, as I was talking about emergency reserves, I talked about how you're, you're, you kind of change with as you age and how you handle your cash. But let's talk about that final box of opportunity capital before I tell you how to go get the best deals out there on the Internet. Opportunity capital is then what I wrote in my notes was, this is only after you've climbed that financial planning pyramid. This is not something I want you to do. On the front end, where you listen to this podcast and you go, you know what? I listened to Brian and he said, you know, with that Roth IRA contribution, I ought to just go put it all in cash and then sit on that Roth IRA contribution for a few years and wait for the next downturn before I put it to play. That is not what I'm saying. I'm saying after you've checked, the box you got your cash reserves. After you've you've put that correct percentage that you've calculated out towards retirement, after you've looked at even college funding, insurance mm-hmm. funding, you got all the estate documents checked. You're like, you know, I am one of these guys who get a, a gold star for looking at a lot of my financial life. If you still have opportunity money, you might want to keep a little extra cash. And, and the reason I say this is, is there's a reason Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway. Are running around with fifty-eight billion dollars of cash. I'm, I'm sorry, was that that was billion with a B? Oh yeah. Right? oh yeah. Now realize some of that's because they have insurance floats and other things, but they have fifty-eight billion dollars of cash on hand. And here's the proof in the pudding. If you look at the Great Recession, now I just did this off my head, Bo. If you think of some others, sure. Bank of America, they bailed out. Mm-hmm. Goldman Sachs during the downturn, they bailed out. GE. They bailed out. And if you remember, Warren Buffett basically was showing up on a white horse to all these companies, and he was saying, I'm here, and I've got a whole big satchel of cash back here, and I'll pull up even more cash if you need it,
0: but But, I need, but
1: (laughs) I'm going to get you to give me. He usually got, like, preferred Uh shares— He got um where options where he could go buy more shares later if he so chose to get more options. I mean, he essentially got to write the deal of the century on every one of these deals. Yep, And he was shooting fish in a barrel. Now, realize, at the time, it looked scary. Now, looking back through the rearview mirror, you're like, dude, good for him. I mean, he figured this thing out and had that opportunity capital in hand and was able to, able to go and get the best deals possible. Same thing, people who want to get into real estate. When I I talk about real estate, I'm specifically talking about like rental property. You know the best time to get into rental property?
0: When everybody's trying to get the heck out.
1: I mean, there were some deals. I mean, I had a guy who was in my neighborhood at the time who um, was telling me, he says, you know, I had some extra cash. Um, I, I went and he's a handy guy, too. I mean, his his profession was very much where he was using his hands. He had a skill set. That's why I can't do real estate, by the way. I mean, I have to pay somebody. To, if I have any drops of water in my garage, I'm panicking that I've got a leak and I go hire somebody because I just I'm not one of those capable guys. Sure. It's real handy. But this this neighbor, he told me about a deal where he found a house. I think he paid like fifty five, sixty thousand dollars 60000 And then he was going to get rent over $1,000 a month. Holy cow. I couldn't find a deal where I I didn't – I was like, that's an incredible opportunity. It's one of those things where, yeah, I mean, I I can see why you'd want to get into rental real estate if that's the case. So it's always – a lot of times, it's just like with your financial assets or real estate assets. The purchase price is very, very important to the whole process. But
0: even if you're not Warren Buffett and you don't have money where you can go bail out Bank of America or you're not sitting on enough money where you can go take down an illiquid asset like a house – there are still other investment opportunities that present themselves in these times. Uh, the one immediate that I think of, Brian, that I, I think you, we were kind of talking about in pre-show prep, was Apple stock back circa 2008, 2009.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it went down below $100. And remember, at the time, I mean, I think it went down to $78 a share at the right. time. And, it, and if you did any type of calculation of, of value, remember, back in 2008, they had zero debt. Or it might be first part of 2009. I can't remember the right. dates. So it was either end of 2008, first of 2009. It went down to 78. They had zero debt on their balance sheets, but they had enough cash that you could calculate out that it was the equivalent of $27 per share. So here's a stock that's trading at $78 a share, that $27 of it is straight up cash. And then that's not even taking into account the buildings and, all, and the goodwill. Goodness gracious. You know, Apple's got a ton of goodwill and customer, you know, loyalty. So it looked like a no-brainer. But even if you want to go beyond looking at individual stocks, because I know the average investor probably doesn't have the capability of figuring out the individual stock, look at the S&P 500. I just did a piece um, that's going to be published shortly, and I was talking about how fast recoveries happen. If you bought into the stock market, um, if you look at the recovery of 2009, if you look at March 9th of 2009 all the way through April 9th of 2009, the first month of recovery – There was a 26.6% rate of return on the S&P 500 in one month. Wow! If you went exactly 12 months into the future, meaning from March 9th of 2009 and took that into March of 2010, there was a 68.5% rate of return in just 12 months. So you don't even have to get cute and trying to find the greatest individual investment and dissecting the balance sheet. If you just went and bought the S&P 500, when it's getting its teeth kicked in, you will be rewarded. I mean, and if you're not keeping the, the, this opportunity capital, because I realize this is a small segment of the population, the be- second best thing you do is dollar cost average. Absolutely. I mean, and I know that's not dealing with cash management, but it is one of those things since we are in a volatile marketplace right now, dollar cost average to take across. Cause if you're, if you're buying monthly and you hit those periods like March of 2009, those are some of your best shares to be buying at those low, low prices. So I couldn't help but talk about that. But now that we're shifting gears, how do you get the best deal? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I want to make sure that we, we share so that you can say, okay, now that I know, I've heard what I need to be doing with cash, I'm sit, I'm looking at my brick-and-mortar bank account that I've had for the last 20 years. Oh, my goodness, Brian is right. I'm only earning 0.01%. percent i got to do something with this because I find out people are doing the right thing with having three to six months of cash reserves, but then they're putting them in their traditional bank and earning nothing. Yep. I'm talking about they're not even getting 1099s because they didn't earn $10 in interest over the year, even though they might have a decent sum of money in the account. So I would tell you the easiest best bang for the bunk, buck – I don't know what a bunk is. The but best bang for the buck. best bang for the buck is just going online. If you go online, these online savings accounts are going to pay you the best rate of return, um, giving you just kind of a taste of some of the best deals, and we'll put this on the website – Paying one and a quarter currently is My Savings Direct, which is a, oh, wow. a version of Im- Immigrant Direct. So you're getting over 1%. Um, GE Capital Bank is paying 1.05%. Barclays is paying 1%. And then, of course, Ally Bank, which is the renaming of the old GMAC, they're paying 0.99%. So it's not hard for you to get... Close to one percent on your savings accounts. But now,
0: Brian, you keep talking about this as an online bank. How do I know that this is like safe, secure?
1: I'm not going to move some money somewhere and it disappears on me. And and that's the, I think that's the biggest fear and why people don't do online savings. Now, before I give you the 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 answer to your question, I would tell you the reason, one of the pluses of working with online savings, you don't have to go close all your old accounts. This sits on top of like a little bubble that sits on top of your traditional bank brick and mortar bank account, and you just ACH attach it, meaning you go and type in the routing number, the account number, and then you just go online and transfer the money back and forth. But you're right. There's a lot of people, especially um, I know my mother thinks it's insane that anybody saves online like this because she's like, you can't see the bank. You can't go touch the money. And and I get that. But here's what you, how you can protect yourself. If you go to FDIC.gov, so FDIC.gov, You know that's that's the that's the government institution that is actually ensuring that your deposits are protected. You can go on there and on the far right side in the little blue box, it says Bank Find. You can click on a button on the FDIC website. It says Bank Find, and after you click that button, it's going to take you to a screen where it will let you type in the name of your bank, and you can type in Immigrant Direct. You can type in you know GE Capital. You can type in Barclays. All these are FDIC-insured, and they will pop right up on the list with the FDIC. And that's how you can kind of get confirmation that these companies actually do have the protection of the Federal Reserve. And, you know, remember, your protection on that is $250,000. It was lifted up during the Great Recession from $100,000, which is substantial. And realize you can also do some additional. Changes in the title, mm-hmm. you know, maybe have a joint account, an individual account. You can have more than 250000 if they're separate accounts. And there's really, if you go to that FDIC website, it will also give you some, if you're worried about having too much cash, I think there's some guidance on what you can do on that to make sure that you are protected and you also are fully insured. Um, I, I think the second plus best place to look if you are too scared of the online, no matter what I've tried to, to say or persuade, I recognize there's a portion of my listeners are just, they want to be able, they're like my mom. They want to be able to go touch and see their location. I recommend credit unions. Mm-hmm. Credit unions, um, they're not going to be able to, a lot of them aren't going to be able to match these online numbers that I shared with you, but they can do a pretty good job. So if I was telling you my second place would be the credit unions, I would go to mycreditunion.gov. That's it's also another thing where you can just type in your zip code, your address, and it will tell you all the credit unions. Another easy thing I thought this was—I just played around with it to see if it worked. I just went on Google and typed in credit unions near me. It populates the whole screen with all kind of credit unions that are right in your area. So feel free to use the online tools to make sure you're figuring it out as well. If you want to kind of Check things from time to time. Maybe you don't have the cash right now, so you're like a month from now, I've got a bonus coming in, that's when I can do my cash reserves. You can always go to great sites like bankrate.com. Bankrate, you know, in addition to being a great website to get articles on personal finance and other things, you can always go pull the best rates um, from credit unions, from from the online um, marketplace, but it's a great resource to kind of figure out what the best, you know, savings rates are out there. But, Hopefully, you've gotten something from this that will make you rethink what, the way you're looking at your unsexy cash, mm-hmm. and and trying to restructure that to where it's just earning a little bit more for you, as well as helping you sleep a little better at night.
0: Brian, will cash eventually one day pay even at the brick and mortars, even at the names we've heard of? Will it begin paying two, three, four percent, or is it trash forever?
1: No, I think you you can't break away. I told you the interest rates all the way back to 1960. This is an artificial environment we're in right now. If I could give you guidance, I do think in the next decade, we will for sure be in a period where you're going to get back to the, at least a three to six percent on your cash holdings, because I don't think we can keep playing this game with the artificial interest rates. I mean, the, the gig is getting close to being up. The party's winding down. And that's why you like I said, you're seeing Wall Street kind of throw a little bit of a ten, temper tantrum. But, um, these are all great things. That, um, you need to make sure you're addressing. This is a basic. Cash is a basic thing. And I, you know, and I would be remiss if I didn't tell you this is one of those things we help clients out with all the time. So if you listen to the podcast, you love what we're sharing and you want to take the relationship to the next level, please reach out to us. You know, go to the website, check us out, money-guy.com. And then after you check us out, you can write the show. I'm Brian. That's Brian, B-R-I-A-N at money-guy.com. You can also Right, my co-host, Mr. Bo Hansen, that's B-O at money-guy.com. But um we, we really, this is the type of stuff that I think a lot of people know they need to be addressing, but life just happens. They get busy, and it's one of those things that we could all just be doing a little better job of. So uh, looking forward to talking to you guys in two weeks. Hopefully things will start behaving a little bit better out there in the financial markets. If it's not, we're going to be the guys that are going to help you make it through it. I'm your host, Brian Preston. Talk to you soon. The Money Guy Podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy Podcast.